armor and spices and garments so that the city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel was full of merchandise and plenty and wealth. What a glorious thing. That is nothing. That looks like a junkyard. It looks like a beggar's store. It looks like a beggar's place on a street corner when you compare it to Jesus' kingdom in the future, right? When Jesus comes back for his earthly kingdom, you look at 1 Kings 10. We're going to look at 1 Kings 10 when we're in the kingdom with Jesus, ruling and reigning. And we're going to be like, man, Solomon's, Solomon's kingdom, really, it looks like the, tra- the trashy part of town. This is glorious with Jesus at the head. Do you, do you agree? Remember, remember the word of warning? The queen of Sheba is going to rise up in the day of judgment and point to the Jewish people alive at the time of Jesus and say, I traveled thousands of miles with little knowledge and little understanding of who Solomon is, and I heard and believed. And you have the Messiah, Jesus, in front of you just a few feet, and you will not believe him. Shame on you. And then it's a, it's a word for the church, too. If we've been given great privilege... All of God's word. We have the whole thing. We know the future. We know how it's going to end. We know how Jesus is coming back. And if we, if we neglect so great a salvation, we, I, I bet the Queen of Sheba is going to come to us and say, I had less wisdom, less knowledge, less understanding than you, and yet I searched out Solomon and heard and believed. How much more should we search out Christ and hear and believe? It's a good thing. But now here it is. And this is going to be quick. It's 13 verses in 1 Kings 11. The kingdom of Solomon, glorious for 24 years, shatters. It falls. And oh, what a fall Solomon's empire has. I titled this, Solomon was willing to sin against God for what he loved. Here it is. Chapter 11 of 1 Kings. But, but, you know, anytime you have in Scripture the word but starting a chapter or a verse, it's almost like, oh no. <laughs> you got this glorious kingdom. Things are going well. Prosperity, apes, baboons. You've tables laden with goods, golden thrones, all sorts of things. But King Solomon. It's just not good news, right? Everybody knows that. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. Listen, he didn't just marry them for political alliances, although he did. He loved them. He lusted after them. It says it. Many, he loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. Don't do it! Don't intermarry with them, God said, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, 
Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab on the hill. This is the Mount of Olives on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Molech, the god that would swallow up a child, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, if you would give it to sacrifice the god Molech, you'd put that child in the hot burning arms of the statue with a fire in its belly and your child would burn up and die. Solomon built these things. He went after them. Verse 8, and he did likewise for all his foreign wives. We just talked about the Moabites and Ammonites in that verse. Two God, God shrines for other false gods, but he did it for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Let me give you the first point. My first point is the character of sin. The character of sin. So if you're taking notes, this is the character of sin. Solomon's sin was not wealth. It was not tons of money. It wasn't lots of gold, apes, baboons, garments, spices. It wasn't gold thrones, gold footstones. It wasn't a great economy. Chariots by the 1400s. Um, horsemen by the 20,000s. That was not the sin of Solomon. It, it, it wasn't. The character of the sin, the great offense of the sin of Solomon, is this. Listen, everybody. He broke... The first commandment. That's it. That's it. He broke the first commandment where God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not love, worship, dedicate yourself, consecrate yourself to, set your heart for any other God but me. I am a jealous God. There will be, I will never be second place. I am the only God. The character of sin? Idolatry. Solomon turned his heart, this wisest man who has ever lived on this earth, allowed his heart to be turned to other gods. Do you notice how many times it said that? Verse 4, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. His wives did it. His love his love for something other than God, his love for women that became so central in his life that he lost the love of, of God. Wow! That is the character of sin. Character of sin is taking our hearts and turning it to anything else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Having some other affection, some other love that we can't live without, that we want to bow down and serve, any created thing that becomes so central to our life that if we lose it, well, our lives will fall into despair and hopelessness. That is idolatry, and it is a breaking of the first commandment. And God said, the first commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the character of Solomon's sin. In the first ten chapters, when Solomon ascends to the throne... And he builds this incredible kingdom with glory and wealth. There's not a word of God's disappointment. God never said, be careful, you might get greedy. Watch out for all that gold laying around there. He, no, it was, Solomon, have no other love but me. Have no other worship but me. 
It is me and me and me alone, Solomon. And this is the character of Solomon's sin. Look at verse 6. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is what idolatry is. It is evil. It is saying, God, you are not worthy to be first place. You are not good enough or worthy enough or great enough or infinite enough to bring me the pleasure that I really need. So I'm turning to other things that will bring me what I think I need. God, you are not sufficient. It is evil then in God's sight for us to be like that. And listen, Solomon did not fully follow the Lord. Do you catch that? He followed the Lord. The Bible says earlier he kept the feasts. He built a house for God and God said, I like it. I'll live there. The problem is, it wasn't a full following. He didn't fully follow the Lord. He left areas of compromise. He wasn't diligent to guard his heart. But rather, all these women were coming in and his love changed. And he no longer loved the Lord supremely. Could that happen to us? Absolutely it could. It could happen to us over anything. Some money, time, a relationship, a possession, something that is created that God gave us to enjoy that then becomes central and we begin to worship and, and cling to it and love. Well, that's the character of the sin. Can I tell you now the subtlety of the sin? Sin is subtle. Here's why. Here's, here's why sin is so subtle. Look at verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives, what? Turned away his heart. This is the subtlety of sin. It's an inward, invisible thing. So my, my first sub-point is, what makes sin so subtle is it, it's inward. It's in the hidden depths of the heart. It's in the recesses that nobody sees. Solomon wasn't blatantly saying, let's not serve the Lord our God. Let's go after these. He, 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 it wasn't blatant. It was this. It was accumulated compromise over and over and over in his heart. It, it, is, it is subtle. It is inward. It is hidden in the heart. And out of the heart, Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, flows all of the issues of life. The Bible in verse 4 says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Sin is subtle. There was no sudden attack, right? Um, listen, not only, not only is the subtlety of sin in its inward invisible nature, but I think a second aspect of the subtlety of sin is, is its gradual nature. For, for Solomon, it wasn't like he woke up one day and he's like, I'm going to defy the Lord and build a, build a, a shrine to Molech. No, it was not like a a sudden attack. It was not a, a, a surprise assault on his life that drove him to idolatry. It was gradual. The subtlety of sin is it's gradual. You, you hardly even notice it. 
You know, I, my mom is here. I'm glad my mom is here. My, my dad is not able to be here tonight. But, but growing up, mom, I went through glasses, eyeglasses all the time. I, I had glasses since I was like four. And, and you know what? I played hard as a kid. I really did. My, one time, my mom bought me, remember going down to West Luth Benson's Optical? She bought me plastic glasses. Gla- the, the, the kind that you can actually like bend. You can bend them and they don't break. But the thing is, you never notice it, but when you're rough with glasses, you know, you don't notice a screw here on the side begins to get loose just a little bit, right? And then it loosens up a little more and you don't know, but over time it loosens up, it loosens up, it loosens up. And then all of a sudden when you're least expecting it, the, the, the piece of glass pops right out and lands on your desk at school. Then you're like so embarrassed, you're trying to put that eyepiece back in your, your glasses, right? That's the gradual nature of sin. It's just a little compromise here. It's, it's just a little bit of, you know what? I'm not going to read my Bible today. You know, I can pray tomorrow. And then, and then another day, and then another day, and it's like, oh, well, wait, now, where, where did, where's my Bible? You know, it, it's, it's just a, a tiny little turning of, of the screw that loosens everything until finally you've lost it all. And for Solomon, look at what it says. For Solomon, verse 4, for so it was when Solomon was old. For 24 years, he's building his empire. He's loving the Lord. And things are going great. And now he's an older man. It's a da- Listen, getting old, er, older is dangerous. True, you have more wisdom, you have more experience, but it's very dangerous. Because you could look back and see, in the last 10 years, little areas of compromise. And younger people, you don't have those years of compromise because you're young. But when you're older, you look back and you're like, you know what? I left this unchecked. I didn't deal with this sin. I didn't, I didn't deal harshly with this attitude. I didn't rip this, this abominable sin out of my life 20 years ago. And now it's just, it's got its roots all over me. Right? So we have the character of sin. It's a breaking of the first commandment for Solomon. It's having another love besides the Lord his God. And there's a subtlety of sin in its inward, quiet nature, and it's gradual, it's gradual breaking down of a man. You know what happens with neglect of, of spiritual things? Over time, you become desensitized. First Timothy chapter 4 calls it a, a seared conscience, where you know how it is. Do you know how it is with this sin issue? When you hear, well, let's see, when you look at a, a bad picture, like you, you see something on TV and you're like, oh man, I, I just can't believe I saw that. That is absolutely sinful. But you end up seeing that visual 20 times. It, the 21st time, it doesn't bother you. What, what at one time actually broke your heart and shook your heart to the point where you almost cried, well, now it, seeing the same sin is, is, is no big deal. You're used to it. You're desensitized. You hear something, a swear word, or you, or you hear something, and, and you're like, oh, don't say that. But if you're around it a lot, all of a sudden, sin is no longer such a big issue. And this is what was happening with Solomon. He, he didn't realize it, but his wives were turning his heart slowly, 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 until finally he's like this. Hey, good idea. Let's get out some lumber and nails and let's build a shrine to Molech and let's encourage people to kill their children in the god Molech and I'll light the match for the fire. Solomon, 
Are you serious? So that's the subtlety of sin. Now, the last point is going to be quick. The tragedy of sin. Sin is tragic. You can never, ever, 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 ever sin and think you can get away with it. You can't. You can never, ever, 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 ever sin and think it won't bother anybody. It won't hurt anybody. It will. It'll chink against your soul. It'll harden your soft heart, and that will affect other people, and it will affect the church. And there is a tragedy to sin in the story. Here it is in verse 9. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord, God of Israel, who had appeared to him what? How many times? Twice. Wait. Wait, 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 wait. Hold it. Solomon, are you telling me the God of the universe appeared to you twice? And with all your wisdom, you forsook him? Yeah, that's right. Tragedy of sin in this case? In 1 Kings 3.3, 3, it says, And Solomon loved the Lord God. 1 Kings 3.3. 3. 1 Kings 11.1, 1. But King Solomon loved foreign wives. How many chapters is that, everybody? From chapter 3 to chapter 11. Eight. It takes the wisest man in the world only eight chapters to turn his affection from God to wives, to foreign wives. What's the tragedy here? The Lord becomes angry with Solomon. Solomon was blessed to have the God of creation and the God of salvation appear to him twice. How could he do this? Verse 10, when God appeared to him twice, God had commanded him concerning this thing. He should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, here's the judgment, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe. Now listen to this. One tribe, God said, I'll give to you, to, to your son. The other tribes will be torn, torn away. But wait a minute. How many tribes in the south? Two. Benjamin and Judah. God promised Judah for Solomon's son. But get this. I love this. This is a, this is a, a special nugget of, in the scriptures. For some reason, I think it was this, honestly. Based on this text, I think God was saying, Solomon, your judgment is, I'm going to tear your kingdom in half. I'm going to give 11 tribes to the north, and you get one tribe in the south. I'll give you Judah. That's a deal. That's more than you deserve, Solomon, but I'll give you Judah. And for some reason, when it comes time for the tribes to depart and get away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Benjamin, the tribe Benjamin says, we're hanging with Judah. We want to be on the right side. And they were, 
Benjamin's on the right side. They're with Judah. So now it's Judah and Benjamin in the south. And the 10, instead of 1 and 11, it's now 2 and 10. And who comes out of the tribe of Benjamin? Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. What, what a great victory story, isn't it? It really is neat. I just love that. But here's the judgment. God said, Solomon, you, you goofed. You were wrong. You sinned. You failed. So the result is the 12 tribes will not be unified. So how long did the unified empire last? I'm not counting David. I'm talking when God dwells in the temple in Jerusalem, which is now 24 years after the beginning of Solomon's reign. There's only a few more years left before Solomon dies. Listen to this. The United Kingdom of Israel as a glory nation only lasts a few years before sin caves it in and the tribes separate. Now you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and when, okay, now there's going to be a unified Israel again where all 12 tribes are back in the land with one king. But from the time of 960 B.C., when is the time that the 12 tribes will finally get together? In the future, at the, end of the 12, at the end of the seven years of tribulation. Then the 12 tribes will finally unite and believe in their Messiah. Because of Solomon's sin, they have to go from 960 BC until some unknown future date to actually become a 12-tribe nation again. Is there a consequence to sin? There sure is. That's the tragedy of sin. There's a deep, deep consequence. I hate sin. I hate it. I see what it does in my life. I see what it does in other lives. And I want no more with it. I want to say no to sin. I want to say no to sin and yes to God. Well, there you see the character of sin. It's a breaking of the first commandment. Idolatry. You see the, you see the subtlety of sin. It's inward and invisible. And it's gradual creeps up on you and takes over. And then finally, you see the tragedy of sin. God is angry. And there's a consequence that they're going to have to live with for thousands and thousands of years. But I love what Romans 8 says. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is what? No condemnation. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust him as Savior, well, you're restored. You're back in the family. You're in the family of God. You're given a Holy Spirit and a new nature. And sin's penalty will have no price. It's already been paid. Sin's power has been broken. And someday the presence of sin will be removed from entirely from us. Isn't that a glorious salvation? So tonight, through, the, through trusting in Jesus Christ, everything can be made right. That's the glory of the gospel. Praise God. And tonight, we're not only going to preach and speak and, and hear the gospel, we're actually going to symbolize it with the bread and the cup. So right now, we're going to turn our attention to the bread and the cup. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, we do it in remembrance of Jesus as a, as a memorial, symbolically. Now, many churches teach that this event that we're doing right now, the Lord's Supper, is a time when grace is given or sins are forgiven. This is not true. You can eat this bread, all of it. You can drink all of this grape juice and no sins of yours will be removed. Nothing will be covered. This is simply a symbolic act. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. It's like my wedding ring. My wedding ring does not make me married. I can take it off and I'm still married. The wedding ring is a symbol that shows everybody that I am a married man and that my allegiance is to one woman. Now, they may not know who the woman is, but they, they know my allegiance is to one woman. 
So that's what this ring symbolizes. This bread and cup, it symbolizes that you by faith are a child of God. That your sins have been paid for by Jesus. And it also shows that you, your allegiance is to one God, one Savior, Jesus Christ. So you are not loving the gods of this world or the things of this world, but you're loving the Lord Jesus Christ preeminently. And if you have issues with others, if there's sin that is in your life that is not resolved, 1 Corinthians 11 says, don't take it. You take this in a worthy manner with an examined heart. There should be no issue between you and other believers or between you and God. For the Corinthians, some took it unworthily. They took it knowing that they're going to be living in sin and knowing that, that things are not right. And God, for some of them, gave spiritual weakness, some physical sickness, and some even were so blatant he just killed them prematurely. For believers, that's believers he dealt with that way. This, this is... This is very sober, sobering. God is looking upon this as a very... You know, what, you know how important symbols are in the Bible? Symbols or pictures are very important in the Bible. At the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, the children of Israel had no water. So God said to Moses, strike the rock and water will flow out. So Moses struck the rock. The rock is Jesus. The striking of it is the, cru is the cross. And that only has happened, that's a once for all event. And sure enough, water comes flowing out of the rock. 38 years later, they're back at almost the same spot with the second generation of Israelites. And the people are complaining about water. And God said, take the rod in your hand, Moses, but speak to the rock. Do not strike it. Because the rock is Christ. It's already been smitten once. Moses is frustrated with the people, and he strikes the rock, which means he did it 38 years before. Now he did it a second time, rather than speaking to the rock. And you know what God said? You have destroyed my picture. You've destroyed my symbol. You're out of the promised land. You're not going in. He's telling Moses, look, at, do you know what Moses did? There's like nobody better than Moses in the Bible except Jesus. Moses brings the people out of Egypt. He is with them for 40 years. He gets them, I mean, he teaches them, trains them, puts up with them, and is probably the most humble, godly man you'll ever meet. And then by one act of destroying God's symbol, God said, you cannot enter to the promised land. This symbol is no different than that. He's saying, you ruin this picture, I'll deal with you. It's a, it's, it is a very important thing. And I'm glad we can do it tonight. Who should take it? Well, believers. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And I do believe baptized believers. Because if you're not baptized by immersion, then you're disobeying the Lord. And if you're disobeying the Lord, well, then why would you take it? Because you're disobeying the Lord. So this is something I believe that baptized believers should partake in. Because they've, they've obeyed the other ordinance of the Lord, which is believer's baptism. And, and then... Um, Somebody who has an examined heart and an examined life. Somebody who has thought about what they're doing and they realize, yep, I'm dealing with sin in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not living in willful rebellion. And my relationships with other believers, other brothers and sisters are right. And then the Bible says, take it. Take it. I'm going to invite the uh, deacons to come to be ready to pass out the elements. And... 